Well, God bless you guys. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see everybody. And just to let you new folks know that we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. In our study in the Gospel of John, we are currently in chapter 15 where we have kind of camped on the first eight verses. You're thinking, when are you going to stop camping? No, we'll... we'll We'll get through it, and uh, it'll be good. Camped on the first eight verses to, to do a series we've entitled The Vine and the Branches. Let's kind of get a little taste of it. We'll finish up the entire eight verses in the next couple of weeks, but uh, verse one, give, give you a flavor. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And so in this series, we have been stressing the importance of fruit bearing in the Christian life, even as Jesus himself stressed that importance in this section of Scripture by telling us that this is how the Father is glorified, that we as his children bear more and more fruit. So we have been looking at fruit. And since it's what the Father desires us to bear, and he brings glory to his name, then we want to do everything we can to bear fruit for the glory of God. But we first have to know what that fruit is. We said last time that there are things in the church that people think are spiritual fruit. A lot of these things that were kind of self-focused what God's going to do in my life by bearing fruit. Fruit is something that the tree bears for other people to eat from. Uh, you know, when we bear fruit for the glory of God, really the fruit is for others to be blessed through. And primarily it's, of course, being a servant, uh, exercising God's servant love and so on. So we have been looking at this subject, and you can go back and kind of uh, look at uh, our study online. Uh, you can even download the notes so that it, you have them there just to refer to. But uh, this morning, I want to continue looking at spiritual fruit. And just first of all, by looking at the necessities of spiritual fruit. What's it, what do we need to have that spiritual fruit is going to be begin to grow in our lives? And these are not profound or deep at all, but they're just practical things that we need to remember and, and, uh, and also... What do you need, first of all, to bring forth good fruit in your life? Well, you need good soil. And guys, this speaks of a heart that is receptive, a heart that wants to grow in the knowledge of God and bear fruit. As I said just a second ago, much of modern Christianity, in America especially, has become very self-focused. It's man-centered, what God's going to do for me. And they, people even take fruit and twist it around, and now God's going to bring forth in my life the fruit of self-confidence and and self-esteem, and and, uh, and and some even define it as the fruit of materialism, uh, prosperity, success, and so on. Uh, but as I said, fruit is all about us, the Holy Spirit, bearing things through our lives that others are blessed through and God is glorified through. But you have to prepare your heart, is the point I'm making, right? You have to have good soil, and that means a receptive heart. That means a heart that wants to bear fruit. And that doesn't happen by accident. Remember that Daniel, uh, you know, 700, 800 miles away in Babylon, uh, he purposed in his heart he wouldn't defile himself with the king's food. He wouldn't 
let a pagan environment destroy his godly walk with God. You're a Christian wherever you go. You're a Christian anywhere. In fact, because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, because God indwells every one of us as believers, we are a walking holy of holies. And everywhere we stand is holy ground. So remember that, because you're representing the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere you go, everywhere you go. But I love what it says about Ezra in Ezra 7, verse 10. Ezra was a priest. It says, in, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, the word of God, to seek it, to study it, to know it, and to do it, and teach it, and teach uh, God's statutes and ordinances to all of Israel. But Ezra had to prepare his heart. It doesn't come automatically, okay? It's something that you have to actively pursue. So good soil. Second thing you need is good seed. Somebody has said you might as well expect a harvest of wheat from a field sown with sand as you could the fruits of righteousness from a heart that has not been sown with God's truths. That's where it all starts. We'll talk about that more in a second. But the idea is that you need good seed. Well, the wisdom of the world is not good seed. James says the wisdom of the world is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Yet that's what most people are feeding on. And even it's coming to the church. You have a lot of churches that have embraced what the Bible calls the wisdom of man. Psychology, self-esteem teaching. All kind of, we talked about this. I'm not going to go through it all again. And one pastor said years ago, churches that used to take money and use it to hire godly pastors who would exegete the scriptures are now using it to hire on staff psychologists and so on. And they're giving people primarily the wisdom of man. What we need is the word of God, right? The word of God. God's word is good seed. You're not going to be able to bring forth the kind of fruit that God loves and honors uh, if you're just filling your mind with the world's wisdom. So good soil, good seed. Third, you need good cultivation. Again, guys, spiritual fruit doesn't grow in our lives by chance. doesn't grow in our lives by chance. The soil of our hearts need, our hearts need to be properly cultivated, cultivated and constantly tended to. This means that we keep our hearts free from sinful desires as much as possible. We're never going to be perfect this side of glory. But that doesn't mean we have the right to indulge ourselves in all kinds of garbage on TV and watching a bunch of stuff and going places we shouldn't go and hanging with folks we shouldn't hang with. I mean, you know, many Christians are not even putting up a fight when it comes to trying to live a godly life, right? Trying to uh, cultivate a, a godly heart, right? But cultivating a godly heart, I think, means constant self-examination, earnest, honest self-examination, where you're always evaluating where you are with the Lord. Um, am I where I should be? Am I living the kind of life that would honor God? No, I'm not living an overtly sinful life, but I'm saying, you know, in, this, this is something we have to understand. Um, when it comes to being a godly person, most of the things, you know, it's not really a battle between choosing between the good and the best. Excuse me. Between the bad and the good, it's, the, it's a battle to choose between the good and the best. That's where a lot of Christians blow it. I mean, most Christians, I mean, love the Lord. They're serious. And, you know, they're staying away from the stuff they used to live with and do. And so they're staying away from the bad. But where the devil trips us up is he gets us to choose the uh, good over the best. Things that are not overtly sinful. 
uh, things that drain our time and uh, become more of a focus in our lives than they should, sports and different things that, you know, I mean, some families check out of church for four months out of the year because their kids are in soccer. Um, you know, soccer's not evil, but that's not going to bless your life or your kids' lives uh, and so on. So they just go to a lot of things, but self-examination and then constant confession of sins and repentance. So you keep your hearts properly cultivated and tended to. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 3. You have to turn to these. I'll just read these two to you. Um, Jeremiah 4, 3. For thus says the Lord to men, to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up the fallow ground of your heart, is the idea, and do not sow among thorns. Now, fallow ground means uncultivated, untended, hard ground. If, a, if earth is going to be sown with seed, it has to be cultivated. Uh, all the hardness has to be broken up, right? You have to soften it so that it is, uh, uh, has the ability to, to take uh, the seed and to then allow it to germinate. Well, a heart can be that way. and We're going to see that in just a moment. But God was saying to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, your hearts have gotten hard toward me. You haven't cultivated a soft heart because you haven't been seeking me. You haven't been in my word. Uh, you've been doing your own thing. You've been sowing, how did he put it, uh, thorns. Thorns are a sign of the curse, right? Uh, the earth didn't produce thorns until uh, man blew it and fell in the garden, right? Then God said, now the earth is going to produce thorns. And in the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to bring forth uh, wheat and crops to, to make bread out of it. It's not going to be easy now. But thorns were always a symbol of the curse. Jesus, on Calvary's cross, he wore a crown of what? Thorns. He bore the curse upon himself, right? So when you're sowing thorns... Or among the thorns, God is saying, you're sowing to sin. You're sowing to the flesh. You're not sowing to the Spirit. Don't do that, God is saying. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. The prophet, God speaking through the prophet Hosea said, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up the fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. I was telling first service, guys, I don't think there's been another time in our history as, as Americans that there's ever been more of a time for us to get serious, more of a time for us to break up the fallow ground. There's ever been a time to break up the hardness of our hearts and seek to lower the renewed passion. It's right now. You know, I mean, America is facing some real, excuse me, real tough challenges, real tough challenges. In fact, in many ways, I was telling First Service that, you know, when the Titanic hit the iceberg, because they had been told that the ship was unsinkable they didn't take it seriously they really believed the ship would never be sunk in fact one woman as she was boarding said to the purser sir is this true this ship cannot be sunk he says madam god himself could not sink this ship whoa but when the titanic hit the iceberg the band was on the deck playing and people were dancing they were, ha they were having a great time. They were having a party, even though they didn't realize at the time the ship was going down. America is the same way. we got people who are completely clueless to what's going on around us. They, they have no idea how serious a condition our country is in. We're going down. I'm not saying God can't write it. God can't uh, keep it from going down completely. But we are going down. And this is a time for us as Christians now, because the world, they're dancing on the deck. They, don't, they have no idea. We know. 
or we should. It's time for us to get serious, right? Well, then you need rain and sunshine. Rain and sunshine. Look, the farmer can cultivate the soil and plant the seeds. But only God can give the rain and the sunshine that actually produce the fruit. Paul said, one plants, another waters, but God gives the increase. In other words, fruit, the kind of fruit we're talking about, spiritual fruit, is ultimately a grace gift from God. Now, when you're talking about rain and sunshine, I do believe that you could use those in a practical uh, application where, you know, uh, if we're going to bear fruit in our lives, we need both rain and sunshine. Rain would be storms of life, you know. Sunshine, of course, would be, you know, smooth sailing and things are, are upbeat and you're happy and things are going well. I know as Christians, we would like to only have sunshine, okay? There, there's a lot of Christians that were like, I, don't, I really don't like storms, God. Can I just have sunshine? Somebody has said, and there's an old Arab proverb that said, all sunshine makes a desert. You need to have some adversity, some, some storms to make your life deep, you know, deep. I know that we love the mountaintop, don't we? And periodically we find ourselves on a spiritual mountaintop, right? What we would like to do is like Peter, can we build some house, pitch a tent and live up here? Or God, can you just maybe take me and airlift me from mountaintop to mountaintop? I don't like the valleys. But God would say to us, but you don't grow in the valley. The valley is what gets you to the mountaintop. They work together. Storms and sunshine and life work together. We have to embrace the storms if we're going to truly enjoy the sunshine. So that's just something to think about, right? But again, guys, spiritual fruit can't be manufactured through raw determination and hard work. It will never come through a work of the flesh. Remember Galatians 5? We studied that last week, verses 19 to 21, where Paul listed the works of the flesh, contrasted it with the fruit of the Spirit, right? The problem is when we try to do through the works of our flesh, spiritual fruit doesn't happen. First of all, you have to have life to produce life. The works of the flesh are dead. They can't produce life, right? I mean, what produces a fruit-bearing tree? A seed from some of the fruit, right? Well, where'd the seed come from? From the last tree. Where'd the last tree come from? From the prior seed. You could trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden when the creator of all things created life. He created that tree and those that fruit and in it those seeds. And you have to have life now to produce life. That's the way it works. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit in contrast to the work of the flesh. And we will produce the work, the fruits of the Spirit, once we give our hearts to Christ if we're not saved. Once we get saved, then of course, as we abide in Jesus, every day the fruit grows naturally. We'll have more to say about that uh, in the next couple of weeks. That's one of the most important concepts in the Bible, abiding in Christ. Very important concept. We'll study that at length. But now, at this point, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. I mean, it's the same topic. But if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. 
And I want to look this morning at the parable of the sower. I like to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at this parable because more than any other parable Jesus taught, this one gives us a look at the kind of soil that produces fruit and what kind doesn't allow for spiritual fruit to be born. So let's uh, look at Jesus as he presented this parable, Matthew 13, verse 3. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up, because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, guys, as Jesus told this parable, this story of the sower, we know from the context he was up in the Galilee to the north. Uh, the area around the Sea of Galilee was famous for being fertile uh, farming land. Uh, that's where most produce was produced. As part of the south you got, of course, ultimately when you got to the Dead Sea, but it was more and more rustic and wilderness and desert. But up in the Galilee, that's where you had all this rich farming land. And it's possible that as Jesus began to give this parable, that there was a man who was actually sowing seed in his field at that moment where the Lord could have pointed and said, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. Now, even if that wasn't true, that there wasn't a guy at that moment sowing seed in his field, um, this was a very common image because they had all seen uh, at one point in their lives living in an agrarian culture, right? They had all seen a man at one point with a bag of seed slung over his shoulder, open on the one end, who would then walk up and down the furrows of his field. And as he did, he took handfuls of seed and he would cast them. He would, you know, and actually the Greek is broadcast. We've been broadcasting the seed of God's word since 2004 on the radio. That's a modern version of what we're talking about, okay? But um, it was a common image to see a guy with a bag of seeds slung over his shoulder, reaching in and then casting it out, sowing his field. All right. The various kinds of soil on which the seed could fall in a field were also familiar. In fact, Jesus mentions four kinds of soil that the seed could potentially fall on. First of all, the wayside soil, he mentions. Uh, when broadcasting seed by hand, it was impossible to control the accuracy of where all the seed fell. And so some seeds inevitably fell on what was called the wayside soil. You say, what was that? Well, primarily, they were narrow paths that separated one field from another. Narrow paths. Farmers used to use these paths to get to one field and another. And travelers would use these paths to travel from one point in the land of Israel to another point. They became the walkways. I mean, especially up in the galley, you had all this farmland. And so, you know, you still needed to travel. 
So they had these paths. And, and farmers would use them to get from field to field. Travelers would use them to get from one place uh, to another. And uh, these paths, of course, because of the constant foot traffic. I mean, you've all seen dirt paths that people have walked on for years, right? Now, the constant pounding of feet on these paths not only makes them hard, but you add then the sun in that part of the world. I mean, in the summer in Israel, it is hot. And the sun just bakes the ground. Literally, the, the, the soil of these pathways, this wayside soil, was as hard as concrete. As hard as concrete. Now, the, the farmer knew that nothing was going to grow on the path, but again, he's just sowing this, the seed in his field. Some of it's going to fall on these wayside pathways. Now, when they do, of course, they can't penetrate. It's like concrete. So when the farmer got far enough down the field, the birds were just waiting, okay? They knew it's lunchtime because, you know, they knew that the seed was going to be there for them, and so they'd swoop in. As soon as the farmer got down the way enough where it was safe to swoop in, they'd swoop in and eat the seeds. They loved it, okay? It was great for them. But then the Lord mentions the stony soil. He says the second type of ground uh, was that some of the seed fell on this, these, this soil called he called stony places where they did not have much depth of soil. Now, guys, stony doesn't refer to loose rocks. Uh, the farmer would, would make sure he goes to his field and he would take out all the loose rocks, all the uh, sticks, all the debris, get rid of it before he even sowed the field. Uh, we were in Israel a few years back, and we were up in the Galilee, and we were in the bus traveling somewhere, and we passed by a farmer's field. He had just cultivated it. How do we know that? Because there were piles of rocks everywhere in this field. He had taken them out. What was he going to do with them? Uh, usually what they do is they take them and actually use them to make field stone walls that separate the, 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 each parcel of land. Okay, so it's kind of neat to see that, though. They always do that. They always cultivate the ground first. So it wasn't loose stones Jesus had in mind here. You say, well, then what was it? Well, this stony soil uh, really refers to the underground bedrock that runs through uh, the land of Israel beneath the soil, often uh, many feet beneath the, the soil. But at some points throughout the land, it kind of juts up where it's only a few inches uh, below the soil. That's what the Lord Jesus was talking about. The seeds that fell on this area of ground, when they germinated, well, as roots do, they went down into the soil, right? But they could only go so far because whether it was three or four inches, they would eventually hit this uh, limestone bedrock shelf and they couldn't go any further. So then all the growing energy was directed upwards. And these plants sprang up uh, like crazy. They look so much more healthy and hardier than the other crops that were just barely sticking out of the ground, whereas you had these other things that were really had grown to a pretty, you know, pretty uh, good height uh, at that point. But listen, again, the heat in Israel, right? As the summer grew closer, the sun became hotter. 
And because these plants, these crops, couldn't go down deep enough into the soil to draw moisture. Um, well, when the sun, when the summer really set in uh, and the heat really got going, uh, they withered and died. They shriveled because they had no depth of root because this, this limestone bedrock was hindering the roots from going down into the soil uh, for a drink to keep them alive. Um, and they withered and died. The third type of ground on which some of the seeds fell, Jesus called thorny soil. This is interesting also. This refers to ground that had been cultivated and prepared by the farmer to receive the seed. But unbeknownst to the farmer, I mean, he didn't realize, you, you, you know, in that area of the world, you, you, you take out weeds and you cultivate the ground and dig it up and make sure it's loose and ready to receive seed. But in some areas, there are these little tiny, you can't really even see them, uh, fibrous roots of uh, thistle weeds. Uh, they're there. The farmer thinks he has gotten them. There are these thorny weeds, right? Now, once the crop has been sown and begins to grow, well, so does the thorns. Now, here's the thing. Thorns are indigenous to a piece of ground. That's where they live. That's their territory, right? And they have quite a hold on that piece of ground and have had a hold on that ground for many, many years, right? And they got a stranglehold on it. So they're always going to have an advantage to crops, cultivated crops that are introduced into that piece of soil from an outside source, right? So once both the crops and the thorns begin to grow, the cultivated crop never stood a chance because the, the thorns, the thorn the roots of these thorns, man, they, they had, you know, that piece of ground, that was theirs. And so they had access to, they, they, they took up the space, the moisture, the nourishment, and even the sunlight as time went on. And so the idea was that um, the cult, cultivated crop uh, never, it was, they were choked out and never brought forth fruit. Now the fourth type of ground on which some of the seeds fell was good soil. Good soil. It meant it was away from the walking path and was loose and soft. It had sufficient depth to support the plants, and it was free of weeds. And so because of all these favorable conditions, when the seed fell on this good ground, this good soil, uh, it germinated and began to bring forth plants, and the plants eventually brought forth a crop, some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. Interesting, the decreasing yield. I'm going to let you run with that. That'll be your assignment to figure out why you think the yield decreased. Well, that was the parable just presented. I'd like to now take a little time where Jesus explained it. Because the disciples, you know, they, God bless them, they tried. And they were, you know, they walked around in a fog most of the time with Jesus, you know, and they barely kept from bumping into each other. But, but so back at the house, they said, well, Lord, what? We don't get it. Will you explain the parable of the sower? All right. He does explain this parable to them, to us, so we're not guessing. Verse 18. Therefore, Jesus said, Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one, the devil, comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. So here Jesus reveals 
that seed as a metaphor for what he said was the word of the kingdom. Or in other words, the gospel, right? In fact, in Mark's gospel, in chapter 4, verse 14, he simply records Jesus as saying, the sower sows the word. Well, there we go. We're not guessing now what this imagery is. The seed represents the word of God, which we sow. In this context, we're the sower, right? But look, I was telling for service that the power to bring forth life and ultimately fruit doesn't reside in the sower. It resides in the seed, right? I mean, you could have two people. You could have a guy who's been a farmer for 30 years, and he knows how to sow a field. does a great job. Then you got a guy like me who's never farmed a day in his life. You could throw a, a bag of seeds over my shoulder, and I'll walk around throwing seeds, but I'm not going to look like this guy's field. But the seeds, if they fall on good ground, they're going to produce fruit, right? Because the power to produce life and ultimately fruit resides in the seed, not in the sower. And again, I have heard stories, one that comes out of our Calvary movement in the early days, where the, where the young people used to live in communes, right? Because they were... A lot of them had run away from their homes, and so guys and gals lived in communes. It wasn't a good situation, uh, to say the least, but God was working, okay? And one day, this young guy shoots up heroin, as he had been doing, and he just, he, you know, the thrill was gone. You know, now he's just shooting up to survive. There was no euphoria, you know, that kind of thing. And so he's so disgusted with his life, and he looks at one of the gals that's living in this commune and says, man, I just wish I could be free of this poison. And she said, well, I know how you can get free. What do you mean? Well, I know how you can get free. But I'm not going to tell you because then you'll be free and walk out of here and I'll be by myself. He said, well, you got to tell me. What happened was she was raised in a Christian home. She knew the gospel. She might have went to Awanas. I forgot the story. But she knew the gospel. And so she, he said, please tell me. She says, okay. She gives him the gospel. She knew it. She wasn't saved herself, but she knew the gospel. He heard the gospel, goes into the other room, kneels down, prays the prayer, receives Christ. God set him free with not even one withdrawal pain. This, was a, this, was a, this wasn't one incident. This was many times repeated uh, through the course of different testimonies. He prayed to receive Christ. The Spirit of God moved in, saved him. He was set free from heroin never had a withdrawal, walked out of there a free man. Because the power is in the seed. It's in the gospel. And it doesn't matter who sows it. Of course, God's people were the ones primarily that should be sowing it. But the word of God is living and powerful. It can bring forth life no matter who sows it into a person's heart, right? Now, the different types of soil represent the different kinds of hearts that the gospel is sown into. And so Jesus explains, first of all, the wayside soil. He said the wayside soil represents or is representative of a hard heart, a hard heart. And guys, this is a person who hears the word of the kingdom, the gospel. And Jesus says, does not understand it. Well, why doesn't he understand it? I mean, a child can understand the gospel, right? We have kids in our Sunday school who are saved, most of them, because you parents have sown the gospel into their heart when they were little. And I know they're saved. I mean, they're, they're witnessing other people. They have a grasp on Scripture. I mean, they're not theologians, but whoa. They grasp the basics. They know the gospel. But there are those that have hardened their hearts to the God. It's, it's not that God has hidden the truth. It's that they 
have not wanted the truth. And so they don't understand it because they've so hardened their hearts, the ability to understand has been taken away. If men love darkness rather than light, God at one point stops trying to give them light and says, okay, here's the darkness you love so much, now you can't receive the light. Now, that's not to say that one of these folks doesn't ever get saved. This is just the, the rule. Once they get to a place where their heart is this hard, they're usually beyond the point of no return, spiritually speaking. But guys, this is a person. I'm just kind of generalizing, okay? This is a person often referred to in the Old Testament as stiff-necked and rebellious. Stiff-necked and rebellious. He is unconcerned with the things of God and is often completely indifferent to anything spiritual. He doesn't give the gospel the slightest consideration when it's heard, when he hears it, thinking it to be total foolishness. Because of his constant rejection of the gospel, this person's heart becomes so hard over time that it becomes, it's rendered impervious to the gospel. The seed doesn't, it just bounces off. He becomes like a superman against the gospel. It just bounces, he's impervious. You try to get him with the gospel, you know, and it, 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 it just... It, it doesn't even penetrate. And of course, the devil's right there to swoop in and snatch it away. Uh, he doesn't want this guy thinking about uh, the gospel. He wants, he wants him to forget about it, right? One author said of this kind of person, he said, and I quote, His lack of repentance or any sense of guilt and shame insulates him from God's help and leaves him utterly exposed to Satan's attack. His heart was, has never been softened by remorse never broken up by convictions of sin, never cultivated by the smallest desire for anything good, pure, and holy, this kind of person is the fool who hates wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1, verse 7, and who says there is no God, Psalm 14, verse 1. The author says he is self-sufficient, self-satisfied, and often self-righteous, end quote. The hard wayside heart. Next, the Lord explained the stony soil. He said in verse 20, But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself and endures only for a while. Uh, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles, he falls away. Guys, the stony soil is analogous to a superficial or a shallow heart. This soil represents the man who hears the word and in contrast to the first guy, the hard-hearted guy, right? Who doesn't even give the word a second thought. He laughs at how foolish somebody could be to think that this Christian gospel can do anything to help anybody. He, he writes of his utter nonsense where this guy accepts the message of salvation. He embraces the gospel when he hears it and is overcome with Great joy and enthusiasm. I mean, he is certain he has found the answer to his felt needs. This is a seeker. But he's not a seeker after God's truth. He is a seeker after what's going to benefit himself. He's lonely. He's empty. He's unhappy. He needs something. He sees you at work, Christian, and you're happy, and you're, you have peace, and he's studying your life to see if this is for real. And, and after you go through an adversity or two and you're still singing praises to God and your life is still upbeat, he goes, this person has something I need. Because I'm unhappy. They're happy. 
I'm empty. They look like they're filled. But it's all about what God's going to do for me. This is where they're coming from, right? But he's certain that he has found the answer to his felt needs. And because his emotional response to the gospel is so immediate and positive, this sort of person's commitment and walk, and I use those in uh, quotation marks, because it's not really a true commitment and walk with God. But it looks like that initially. But because he's so enthusiastic, this person's commitment and walk with God grows quickly, and listen, seems to dwarf other Christians in the church. Ah, there right away the pastor is looking at this person going, wow, i got to get this person on my team here. Boy, are they on fire. Be careful. Be careful. It's not, it's not, everything is not always what it appears, right? I mean, for a while they're more, maybe more vocal in talking about their faith than others, talking about this incredible experience they had where they found Jesus, quote-unquote, and they may even be zealous in church attendance. I mean, I've seen these kind of folks, and for a while, every time the church doors are open, they're there. So, wow, every time something is going on, they are there. They are zealous for the Bible. They're zealous for uh, prayer and, and getting together with Christians. They have found what they have been looking for. Everything is going to be great now. What they didn't sign up for was persecution. And, and that's what always comes when you're out there telling people about Jesus. And I think these folks do in a way, tell people about Jesus, or a little, at least their experience with Jesus and what Jesus is going to do and has been kind of doing in their life. They're feeling much more happy and fulfilled than ever before. And they think everyone's going to be thrilled when they tell them that they're a Christian now. And so try that, okay? Go out into the world as you know someone who's just found Jesus. By the way, he wasn't lost. He didn't find him. He finds us, but that's okay. That's another topic. Go out there into the world and tell people how you have found Jesus and how they need to find Jesus too. Believe me when I tell you, they won't strike up the band and throw you a parade. They're going to attack. Sometimes this takes these folks aback. It, it, takes, it catches them off guard. They didn't understand. Why, why are they attacking me? I mean, Jesus is good. And after a while, they figure out, well, you know, this isn't really doing what I thought it was going to do. I mean, I thought receiving Christ was going to be all sunshine and roses. And I don't like this persecution. My friends have forsaken me and this and that. And so eventually they leave. They leave. One commentator had this to say about these folks. He said, and I quote, but because, because the soil of his heart is shallow, he has no firm root in himself. The gospel prompts an immediate, an immediate positive reaction, but it is temporary and all the change is on the surface rather than in the depths of his heart. His feelings were changed, but not his soul. When this person hears the gospel, it brings a religious experience, but it does not bring salvation evidenced by the fact that when, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. He has come to Christ for what he thought he would get in the way of personal benefit, but when confronted with the high cost of salvation, he will not pay the price, end quote. All right, well, then Jesus explained the thorny soil. Verse 22, 
Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. So guys, the thorny soil represents the worldly heart. The worldly heart. This third kind of soil is infested with thorns and represents the man who hears the word of the gospel and receives it, but his heart is too worldly for it to take root and bear the fruit of salvation. Heart is too worldly. In other words, the so-called profession of faith isn't genuine. And so it takes a backseat to his one true love, which is the world. I was telling First Service again that, you know, there are worldly people who have glutted themselves on what the world offers. They, you know, they have uh, got a lot of material things. They take nice vacations. They've got, you know, a couple beautiful cars, maybe a boat, a camper, live in a nice house. And they've glutted themselves on and, and, and enjoyed many uh, uh, experiences, pleasurable experiences and so on. So at any given moment, they can come to a place where they say, you know, I'm getting, I don't think this is satisfying me as it once did. And so they give church a chance. Again, they know a Christian, and so they go to their church, and uh, when the altar call is given, we'll say they come forward, pray the prayer. But it's a passing fad. Uh, they eventually figure out, no, the world is really where I belong. Because uh, I like to do things that the Bible and the church says I can't do anymore. I like to party. I like to sleep around. I like to do things that, you know, used to bring me a measure of pleasure. And I can't do those things now. So uh, this isn't really for me. And so their love of the world chokes out whatever so-called faith they had. And um, it, was, it was a token faith, really. And eventually they fall away from Christianity and from whatever church they were going to. You know, such was one of Paul's co-laborers for the gospel, Demas. Demas, who was a part of Paul's missionary team, had accompanied him to how many places we don't know. But at one point, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, he said he lamented, Paul did, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. You know, there are few barriers to the gospel greater than the love of riches in particular and of the world in general. Again, one author said, and I quote, a person who comes to church but never becomes committed to serving, who is continually preoccupied with money, career, fashion, sports, and everything else but the Lord's work as a person with a weed-infested heart. Remember what Jesus said, Luke 12, 15, take, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things they possess. You'll never find satisfaction, fulfillment, and purpose in life in the world with all the world has to offer. It's only found in Jesus. Well, then, finally, the good soil is explained, which is pretty self-explanatory. Verse 23, But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, their heart is receptive, 
who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The good soil represents a receptive and sincere heart. A receptive and sincere heart. Guys, the only barrier to salvation is unbelief. And anyone who is willing to accept Jesus Christ on his or her turn, excuse me, accept Jesus, any person, whether male or female, um, anyone who is willing to accept Christ into their heart on Jesus' terms is what I was trying to say. Because you have churches today that are so desperately trying to fill seats and pews that whatever will bring people in and get them to stay, because a big church tells people we're happening. God's here, plus the money that comes in, right? So consequently, many pastors will lower the standard and lower, they just basically tell people what they want to hear, and churches get flooded. You know, you can get a lot of people to come to church. Whether or not they come to Christ, I, I don't know. It's debatable. But if a person is willing to accept Jesus on his term, without strings attached, Lord, I'll accept you, but now you got to heal me or you got to prosper in my business or do this or that jesus won't come into a heart where there's strings attached right if you humble yourself and say be merciful to me a sinner i open my heart to you lord jesus come in and take control that's a prayer he will always always answer it indicates your heart is good soil now listen as we bring this so close this parable is actually considered controversial controversial as many pastors and teachers have different interpretations as to what exactly Jesus is teaching through it. All right. It's the soils that are the point of controversy. Let me just say this. The first soil and the last soil, they're easy to interpret. They're not part of the It's those middle two soils. That's where the problem lies. Many interpret Jesus to be teaching that, you know, the first soil person, the hard-hearted person, remains in unbelief. Okay, he doesn't get saved. That's pretty obvious. While the other three soils, three hearts, represent those who received the gospel and did get saved. Albeit, albeit they say the shallow soil and the thorny soil represents carnal Christians. But they're saved. Why do you say they're saved? Because, look it, they brought forth foliage. They began to grow. They didn't bear fruit. But look at the foliage. is evidence that they're saved. Listen, these men that Jesus was talking to lived in an agrarian culture. They all knew agriculture. And they knew that the whole point of agriculture was to bear fruit, not foliage. Who cares about foliage? You can't eat foliage. Now, Jesus knew that. The guys he was talking to knew that. I mean, initially, they didn't understand the parable. But when he explained it to them, I'm convinced they knew immediately what he was teaching. Besides that, they had just gotten done hearing Jesus say earlier in our Matthew 12, verse 33 that they would be able to determine the genuine Christian from the phony Christian, listen, by their fruits. The idea being only genuine Christians would bear fruit. Would bear fruit. Spiritual fruit. 
Therefore, again, when Jesus explained the parable, I really believe they understood what he was saying. They understood that this parable, he wasn't teaching that three out of the four people that hear the gospel get saved. Do you think that three out of the four people you witness to in your neighborhood get saved? I don't see that. I mean, one definitely gets saved, the good soil. One definitely does not get saved, the hard soil. What about the other two middle people? That's the debate. I believe they're counterfeit Christians. I believe they're phony believers. I mean, guys, counterfeit or phony Christians make up a lot more of a segment of the church in these days than you might realize because we are in the last days. And Jesus himself said, and all of his apostles who wrote uh, the New Testament basically warned us there was coming a time when, you know, the church would be infested with terrors. You would have a lot of counterfeits. And uh, why would that be? Well, there's several reasons. I mean, I can give you a lot more than just these two. But uh, the biggest thing is because of the last day's deception that we are in. Um, Paul the Apostle warned us that, uh, well, the, the deception was in his day. He was technically in the last days himself. The resurrection of, of Christ uh, started the last days, okay? And it continues to the present, but we're getting ever more close to Jesus' return, so we're in the end of the last days, basically. And Paul told us that in the last days, you would have a lot of people who would not want to hear sound doctrine any longer, right? Second Timothy 4, uh, but would gather to themselves teachers who would tell them what they wanted to hear. And, and so churches, pastors have picked up on that, not that they think that they're doing anything wrong, whatever gets people in the door. Really? Well, Jesus didn't use that technique. He, he, he fired out the truth. And either people responded to it or they didn't. But he didn't modify it or drag it down to their level where he made it appealing to them. Because now you're just going to fill the church with religious unbelievers. Phony Christians, right? But we see, you know, we see today in the church... Well, we see people who claim to be Christians preaching a false gospel. Another Jesus, a different gospel, cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and many others are, are, you know, picking up on the Bible and using it to teach all kinds of false doctrines. But you also have in the church those that preach a gospel, quote-unquote, that feeds, you know, worldly desires for material wealth instead of, and deletes any reference to the cross. Like, you know, dying to self, taking up your cross, following Jesus. That's not a message that a lot of health and wealth churches are preaching because it's all about getting people in the doors in, into the seats, right? Um, but there are good hearts out there, guys. There are good hearts. And I just wanted to stress this uh, as we bring this to a close. But, you know, there are uh, good and receptive hearts out there like Cornelius. You remember Cornelius? He was um, a Roman centurion. And uh, we read in Acts chapter 10 um, that Cornelius had a sincere and receptive heart to the things of God. Let me just read you the first two verses. It says, There was a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man. Now, this guy's not saved, but listen to how he's described. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the poor and prayed to God always. It's amazing how religious a person can be and still not be saved. That's very important that we understand that. 
My view is that Cornelius is an example of a man who lived up to the light which God gave him. And while that wasn't enough light, enough truth to save him, don't you know God will never let anyone go to hell who wants to know the truth, who's open to the truth, right? I mean, God will never, if, it will never be a lack of information that causes a person to go to hell. Because if God has got to send an angel from heaven to appear to somebody in some remote area of Africa who looks up into the night sky and says, I don't know who he is, but there is a God who made all this. I, I You know, the creation declares the glory of God, right? And, and in his heart, this native is trying to respond to this God as best he can, worshiping him, but doesn't know who he is, doesn't even know his name. You know, I'm convinced if God has to, he'll send an angel. And I've heard stories of missionaries that finally got to some remote area of Africa, and they came upon a tribe that was living way in, in, the, in the woods there. And when they began to try to communicate, they found out these people were Christians. I said, well, how are you Christians? They said, well, we knew there had to be a God. We cried out to him, and he sent an angel to tell us his son had come and died for us. They were saved. Because they were open to hearing God's truth. In the book of Revelation, I think chapter 14, at one point, God's going to send an angel flying through the sky over the earth, proclaiming the everlasting gospel. So that nobody can say, well, God, I didn't hear, I never had a chance to hear the gospel. Everyone is going to have an opportunity to hear the gospel. So if you reject it, you reject it of your own free will, knowing what the gospel says, right? But guys, I believe there's a lot of people in the world who are like Cornelius. They're not agnostics or atheists, uh, not overtly wicked or immoral. They're loving people. They're good parents, faithful spouses, uh, law-abiding citizens who believe in God in their own way, but don't have enough information yet to be saved. That's where we come in. And you know how it starts? By you preaching the gospel through the way you live. And, and me too. God has written, we are living epistles, right? Before, you know, anyone's going to want to hear what we know, they're going to want to know that we believe it enough to live it. And so you're, you're the greatest walking you know, of the gospel that could possibly be. And once people know that you're a Christian, and, and again, I'll close with that. I was telling first service again, right? Sometimes you can be a Christian and, and still not, it still be kind of worldly, right? Now, you know, you really aren't the, um, what is it, the uh, thorny soil. You're, you're, you really are good soil. The, the, the gospel is taking root. You're saved. But we can still be carnal sometimes, worldly. Uh, it's not good, Right? Um, you can also be sometimes a little shallow where you don't want to be persecuted now that you're a Christian, so you kind of hide your faith, right? You're light under a bushel. When I got saved, I, first of all, for uh, six and a half years, I worked with truck drivers for an oil company. Blue-collar guy loaded gasoline to trucks and... Um, Received refinery a product from the refinery, so I work with blue. I was a blue collar guy. Work with truck drivers. Now, if you've ever worked with truck drivers, God love them. They're not the most flowery speech guys around. Okay, and I was right there with them, as I've told you many times before. 
you know, I punctuated every sentence with an expletive. I could cuss the wallpaper off the wall if you gave me a chance. Because that's where I was coming from. And all of a sudden, I get saved. And everything's changing, right? And so what I would do is I worked midnights, and I would get there, relieve somebody, and I was a night watchman for a few hours, and I would, you know, wait till everybody went home, went to my car, pulled my Bible out, got my cassette tape player and all my little Bible tapes, and, and I would study for those three or four hours. No, one, one day God spoke to me and said, are you ashamed of me? What do you mean, Lord? Well, why are you waiting till everybody goes home before you, you know, get out my word and so on? The Lord nailed me. I mean, yeah, I was, I was embarrassed. I didn't want the persecution. So one night, here I am, I pulled up, took my Bible, took my cassette tape player, my little bag of tapes. I plop it down, of course, the Bible right there, face up. And that just started it, you know? <laughs> you know, what is this? What are you, what are you a Bible thumper now? And you know, I had an opportunity to witness to a lot of people, but now they were watching me, right? Is this guy for real? Because I know this guy. I can't believe he's a Jesus freak now. So they're watching me. And how you handle situations now that people know you're a Christian, very important. You need God's grace going in. Because your life can become the greatest witness you can give them. Because your light is life now that you're a Christian. So may God give us grace, right? And I just want to end with, by saying, you talk about the four different types of soil. Really, ask yourself, what soil is my heart? And again, we understand sometimes you can be good soil and be a little worldly, a little shallow, and so on. But I'm talking about in general. Is your heart open to God? I mean, I don't think the hard-hearted ones are here today. Uh, maybe they're watching online. I don't think so. Uh, you know, so I'm really not talking about the hard-hearted uh, leather jacket wearing, motorcycle riding, beer guzzling kind of guy. Usually they get saved, but you know, usually the wayside soil hearts, they're not really tuned into church on Sunday morning. So, are you a good soil? Have you received Christ and love to grow, love to draw close to Him? Or are you playing games? Is there foolish but not fruit? Very important that we examine ourselves. Because we need to know. We don't want to stand before Jesus someday and hear him say to us, I never knew you. Then it's too late to change, right? So a good parable to examine ourselves. And uh, next week, God willing, we will continue. There are some very important things left in these eight verses that I want to bring out. And we'll look at those starting next week. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is living and powerful. And Lord, it has transformed our lives. For anyone who is here this morning who has not really made a commitment to you, touch them, Lord, speak to them, convict them, and Lord, bring them to you in truth that they might receive Jesus into a good heart, receptive, open, and begin to bear fruit, the fruit of righteousness. So Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.